All right, you guys. Good to see you all this morning. We are, if you can believe it, in week 11 of the series on Leviticus. And hopefully you're enjoying it and learning a lot. I know I am. This morning we're kind of at the pinnacle, like the center. Leviticus is the center of the Torah. In the center of Leviticus is chapter 16. In the center of chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. And that's really, that's where we are today. So not great planning on a holiday weekend but you guys are the real holy ones, so, so it, it's fitting that you, you should be here for this. And I want to start this morning with a, a bit of a visual that I think can help us with um, the text. It's just the idea of playing catch. Whose game? Who can catch? Who has? All right, here we go. Excellent. All right. So there's this thing that we do when we play catch. Who wants one? It can't just be boys. Come on. Anybody else? There, there's a thing we do when we, when we catch. I'm like, you're pointing to your, you're not supposed to do that. There's this thing that we do. I'll do it to Kristen. Kristen can play catch. Don't wing it at me, honey. Um, there's this thing that we do when we play catch where um, you adjust, right, to, to your partner. It's funny. I grew up, like, I was a, a sports kid. Like, I loved playing catch. In fact, I remember I have these vivid memories of me just bugging my dad to play catch with me all the time. He could be like in a deep conversation with another adult and I'd be like, hey, you want to play catch? You want to play catch? And he'd have to like do both at the same time. But there's this thing you do when you play catch where you try to, Jim was almost asleep, where you, I should keep this around always, um, where, where you size up your partner and you tailor your play to their skill level, right? So if you're like, if you're with a little kid and you try to throw it, Chris wants it, there we go, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to do that on the little kid part. Like, I know you're confident. When you're teaching a little kid, you know, like you try to have them catch it. If they can't catch it, you'll move in closer, right? And you'll throw it a little softer. And if they don't catch that, you'll move in a little closer until you can pitch and catch. And, and then, then you're playing catch, right? And, and this is just something natural that we all do. Um, it's an instinct we have when we play catch with the ball or something. We move closer in order to make this connection. Now, I want you to imagine you're playing catch with a spouse or a coworker or a friend or a family member, only you're not using a ball. Here, we'll make the ball go away for all. Um, you're not using a ball. You're using your feelings, right? And your thoughts, your emotions, your, your things you think about and feel about life and work and relationships, and you toss these out toward that person, and your hope is that they will catch them and then return some of their own, like tell you some of their own thoughts. And, and what's weird is that if you do this, if you it can find a way to make that connection, it's not just fun like playing catch. It's deeply meaningful. It's, it's life-giving to us. But it's weird because the dynamics of this when we're playing adult catch around things that are serious in our life, the dynamics of those grown-up games of catch are really the opposite of playing catch with a little kid and a ball. Because if you, if you throw this out there to them and they fumble it or they seem annoyed by it or are put off or afraid, you don't get closer and try to make the catch. You actually get farther away and then you kind of wing it at their head like as hard as you can, you know, right? And, and so the, it gets hard, in, in real relationships, it gets harder to, to pitch and catch, to make that connection. If they miss again, you'll step farther away and probably throw it a little harder. But if they make the catch and, and then send it back to you, you actually step closer to them. 
right? Come in. And the conversations get, the closer you are, a little quieter, a little deeper, a little more personal and vulnerable. And this is, this is basic, if you know psychology, this is basic attachment theory, right? If we make a bid for a relationship, we toss something personal and vulnerable out there, someone catches it, we feel validated and seen and we step closer. But if they drop it or seem annoyed or, or um, ignore it, we feel something like shame, right, or embarrassment, and we move further apart. And sometimes this distance can become so great that it breaks, like there's a breach in the relationship. And this is one of the ways that I think we can think about the dynamic um, of the relationship between humanity and, and God. I mean, think of Adam and Eve. Immediately after eating the fruit, the first thing they do is hide. They put some space. They get some distance between them and God. The only difference is, with, when you're playing catch with God, there's, it's a combo deal. Like, we move back, but God, it's like God is like a father playing with a kid. God just keeps moving closer. We try to run away, and God just keeps coming after us. And yet humanity keeps running, obviously. And over time, there, there is a breach. There's, there's a break. And this is one of the ways to think about our subject for today, which is um, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Say Yom Kippur. All right, so the, the rituals of Yom Kippur are really intended to help the children of Israel stop moving away from God and come out of hiding and live into the reality of the nearness of God without any fear. And the text that we read for today is, is kind of, it, it focuses on two things that caused the breach. The first we've talked about a lot, it's this word um, temah, uh, or unclean, um, which really just means ordinary blemish, right? Just impurity. And, and it's, it's kind of a normal thing. Um, it's it's um, anytime you step up close to the boundaries between things that make for life and things that make for death, that's a tama place. And, and what, what you have to do then is just be super careful about how you proceed. And so the people would intentionally put a little distance between them and that which is holy. And they did this intentionally. It's not a problem. It's actually a sign of, of reverence for God. That's one, tama. The other is this word, um, um, pesha. Say pesha. Pesha is a, is a Hebrew word, usually translated as sin. The problem is in English, sin has really come to, to mean over the last 150, 200 years, really just like doing something naughty. That's sin, right? But pesha is a relational term. It always has a relational element. So it, it means really breaking faith with someone through doing something naughty, like a transgression or, or a betrayal. But it has this relational thing. It means causing a distance or a breach between parties. So for instance, in the ancient world, if you had a treaty with another party, but then you broke that treaty, they would say that that, that was, they would call that pesha. Um, but they wouldn't say you peshed against them like you sinned against them. They would say you peshed with them because it's, it's, it's relational. You break faith with them, right? And it's very important for us or, to understand or we're going to miss Yom Kippur. The, the primary category of sin in the Hebrew imagination is not like you got caught speeding and now you owe a fine, right? You've, you've been found guilty and here's your punishment. It's more like your actions have consequences. They just do. You reap what you sow, right? If you've broken faith with God or yourself or other people or the world, 
there is a distance that grows in that relationship between parties. And then you can't pitch and catch. You can't find that meaningful connection that helps you make sense of the world and even solve the world's problems. So Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is about dealing with that breach. And there are these two things that cause it. There's, there's um, Tameh and there's Peshach. Tameh is ordinary blemish. It's, it's not sinful. Tameh happens, right? That's just the way it goes. It's unavoidable. But it does impact the relationship, right? You step back. But then um, to address Tameh, the Jewish rituals will suffice, right? You just wait your seven days, do your, do your washing, go see the priest, do your offering in the temple, and, and you're, back, you're back in the game, right? But to address Pesha, this breach of faith, of relationship, through transgression of some kind, it requires a lived solution. The rituals can't just magically fix relational problems, right? You betray a friend, betray a spouse, right? Even betray yourself. There's a relational problem, and it requires a relational solution. It takes an actual lived solution, like a real-life solution. That's what Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement are about as well. It's teaching the children of Israel how, how to deal with this. It's like, you know how, like, if you break faith with somebody in your life, um, like, you mislead them, you betray a confidence with them, you, you take advantage of them, I mean, and you know, you kind of know, I, I, real, I blew this. And then they find out, and their this distance, right, happens. There's a breach in the relationship. They're kind of not, they're avoiding you. They don't show up at the places where you are. They're not answering texts or whatever. But we have this ritual in our culture how, of how we deal with this. You, you go to them, you confess what you did, you, you um, apologize, ask forgiveness, and you talk it out. Hopefully they will forgive you. And, and, and then you'll both feel a little better. And this is sort of the normal way we handle these things, a normal ritual in our world. And yet, even, even if you do this, there's still this relational weirdness between you sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? Like, they forgive you, but there's this thing hanging out there between you, like a wound, a lack of trust or something. And you, and you think to yourself, like, I, I won't feel right until I make up for this and make amends for this somehow. And so what you do is you live on and look for a lived solution, a chance to show them you do know how to keep faith. You know how to be a friend, an, an expression of fidelity or kindness or affection and self-sacrifice. And, and this is um, akin to forgiveness, but it's not just forgiveness. This is um, what we would call reconciliation, but what Leviticus calls atonement or at one meant. Remember this, this word kafar that we talked about in early on, week one or two? Um, to cover over an offense is, is the, how you bring at one meant, right? Repair a breach, draw people back together so that they can pitch and catch. There's this theologian, I love Miroslav Volf. He says the difference between forgiveness and atonement is forgiveness is sort of the ritual where the offense is accounted for. Atonement is what you call it when the relationship continues on to the point where that offense no longer defines the relationship. It's, it's being covered over. You keep faith. You live. It's a live solution. You keep faith in, until that thing no, no longer defines the relationship. And the distance has been closed, and you can pitch and catch, and you find that relationship 
meaningful. Now, let's mess with this. Let's complicate things a little bit. So what do you do if the damage is irreversible? Like somebody dies or something's destroyed, right? What, what do you do? You can't make amends. Where do you put that sense of obligation? Like if there's no place to put it, you, you just end up carrying it around. And probably all of us have more than one of those things. We just blew it and it's, the damage is irreversible and now we carry it with us. Another complication. What if the sins aren't against a person, but they're just sins against God? My friend, friend Rabbi Glickman and I were, were hanging out and he was teaching me about this and he explained it this way. He said, if I, if I um, sin against another person, I come to them, ask forgiveness, I make restitution, and, and if they don't forgive me, Jewish law states, I have to make three attempts. And then if they don't forgive me after that, it's on them and I'm, I'm good, right? And um, we're on the patio of this, of this uh, coffee shop when he was saying this. And he goes, but if I go inside and buy a ham and egg sandwich with a side of bacon, which is not kosher in, in their laws, he said, there's no human that I can go to to make amends and ask forgiveness, right? So, so that sin, he said, that sin goes on my list for Yom Kippur, for the Day of Atonement. And for ordinary Tame things, everyday things, there's, there's rituals for that. With, with Pesha, rituals aren't enough. There has to be a lived solution for that. And this is what the Day of Atonement and Yom Kippur, they're synonyms. They're, this is what they're about. So th these rituals come to us in Leviticus 16, which is the center of the Torah. And the first thing that happens there is Aaron, who's the high priest, has to do a bunch of the normal sacrifices, the, the korban, for ritual purity. Because th this is all taking place, if you remember, it's all taking place on the same day that Aaron's sons died, in, in, right inside the Holy of Holies, right? It's all, it's all happening on the same day. So they had to do, like, rituals of purity for that, for his house, um, for, um, his, for him, for his household. And then he's told to bring these two he-goats to, um, uh, to the tabernacle for the children of Israel. And here are the instructions. It says, Aaron shall take the two he-goats and let them stand before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall place lots upon the two goats, one marked for the Lord and the other marked for Azazel. Aaron shall bring forward the goat designated by lot for the Lord, which he is to offer as a Hatat, it's sometimes called sin offering. We talked about this in earlier week. It's a purification offering when you figure out you did something wrong. So offer it as a hatat while the goat designated by lot for Azazel shall be left standing alive before the Lord to make expiation with it and to send it off into the wilderness for Azazel. So these are special rites only for the day of atonement. No other time did these happen, just one day a year. And they involve these two goats that are brought to the tent of meeting entrance, and then they use the Uma and the Thurman, remember the Urim and the Thummim, that thing, and they cast lots. Just to remind you, this is ancient religion. This is very early in the life of Israel and their understanding about God. They roll dice to see which goat gets which fate. One goes to the Lord, one goes to this Azazel. So... What is this Azazel? How many, how many people never noticed this before in this? Yeah. 
A lot, in a lot of English translations, they just translate it scapegoat. Um, Azazel is interesting. You can, I mean, just Google it sometime. It's, you can see people get into huge fights about it. Um, it's, it's a Hebrew word. It's not found anywhere else in the scriptures. And the truth is, we don't know what it means. We, we are not sure what it means. There are some options that everybody fights about. Some say it was the name of a place out in the wilderness, a geographical place. Some say it was referring to the goat itself. This is how a lot of um, post-Reformation Christians read this. Um, like, for instance, William Tyndale, the guy who did, remember he's the guy who did the first English translation? He's the one who invented the word at atonement, who made this Frankenstein word out of at one meant. He thought this was the right one. And so he made up another word called scapegoat. He invented this word um, for his English translation. And he thought it was referring to, to the goat itself. Most scholars today seem to say it's, it's a third option, which is Azazel was the name of some kind of mythic ruler of the wilderness. It's kind of like a personification of the forces of barrenness that lived in, in the desert and threatened their lives. Almost uh, very much like the serpent in Genesis which is nowhere does it say is the devil or a demon. It's just a, just a serpent. It's a personification of these forces. They, the, this is the standard Jewish interpretation, is that Azazel was a proper name of some mythical desert being. It's only mentioned once, and it wasn't a big deal. It was just a symbol that helped them explain what's happening here with God on the Day of Atonement. So it's a personification of the forces of evil and exile and death, which they're always wrestling against. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. First, let's look at God's instructions. This is what they're supposed to do with goat number one, okay? This comes from verse 15. He shall then slaughter the people's goat of Hatat, bring its blood behind the curtain, so this is into the Holy of Holies, and he shall sprinkle it over the um, kapareth, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, and in front of the cover. Thus, he shall purge the shrine of impurity, Tameh, and transgression, Pesha, of the Israelites, whatever their sins. And he shall do the same for the tent of meaning, which abides with them in the midst of their impurity. You guys, there are so many fascinating things about these two verses. Like, we could go days and days around this. In fact, I didn't finish until like 2.30 in the morning last night. I'm not kidding. And most of it is because of these two verses because they're really complicated and, and amazing. But um, I'll be quick. Um, obviously, it explicitly states that the whole reason for this rite with this goat number one um, on Yom Kippur has to do with the purging of the shrine, the purification of the Holy of Holies. That's what this goat is about. From, from Tameh, from Pesha, and how it contaminates things. I mean, I don't know about you, but th this one has been working on me. It kind of messes with me. They, they've sacrificed a goat. They've brought its blood into the Holy Holies. But the reason, explicit reason prescribed here is not to pay for my sins so my sins can be forgiven. The reason prescribed is order, in order to purify, purge, the holy of holies. Not me personally, not them personally, not the children of Israel. The shrine, the place where God lives. So why, why would they need to do it? Why would they need to do this? Well, that's why. Their, their, their belief was Tameh, Pesha, these um, impurities and sins sort of ripple out into the world and 
and impact everything. Actions have consequences. And this is actually, by the way, here in chapter 16, verse 16, the first time the word pesha, this word for sin, first time it's used in the entire book of Leviticus is right here. And remember, the problem with sin is not that it creates some like negative balance in a cosmic ledger. Um, The problem with sin is it disorders things. It causes this distance in relationships. A cosmic kind of malfunctioning starts to happen in the world. And um, this gap opens between God and self and other in the world. And, and it was thought that this, these impurities and sins even contaminated the holy place. Um, in this case, it's, it's on the nose because Aaron's sons have died in the Holy of Holies. A corpse is unclean. You're not supposed to let un- anything, Tom A, cannot come into the Holy of Holies ever. So it's contaminated this place. So that's part of the deal. They need to to um, cleanse this holy of holies, but really kind of the, this is a general sense, not just this one time with the, with the corpse. In a general sense, this is always happening. And if you remember, and this goes back, clear back to our study of Exodus, in the holy of holies is, is the Ark of the Covenant, right? And it was built with this like three, 400 pound solid gold lid and on the top of it are these two cherubim their wings come together over the top of it and and it it was meant to um, symbolize God's throne so Yahweh lives or the place where God like touches ground on the earth in the in the Hebrew Bible is in this space above the ark and then God's feet rest on the ark it is God's footstool that's what scripture says and and this lid was called the Kapareth, um, which is very close to the word kafar, atonement, very close to the word kapur, as in Yom Kippur. And so this is all the same, same thing. In, in English, most of the time, um, uh, kapareth is translated as mercy seat, which is huge. So the, the place where God, um, Yahweh, is thought to touch down on the earth is this space above the ark that is called kapareth. It's called mercy seat. That's where God touches down, on the mercy seat, in the place of mercy. And so in order to purify this space, Aaron would bring the blood from from the goat, and he would sprinkle it over the cover and in front of the cover. Essentially, seven times he would sprinkle blood just into the space above the ark, right? And this was the place God was thought to dwell. This is all for the purification of the shrine. Why, Why did they need to do this? Well, Um, This goes back several weeks ago. It's kind of all tied together here because brokenness contaminates things and they were afraid that um, Yahweh, Yahweh, in in light of this contamination of the place where God dwells, Yahweh might just like peace out and leave them there in the desert. Just pack up and leave them there alone. So far from the tree of life, right? Right? Not where they can just pick from the tree of life and live. Now, the only thing that keeps them from death is proximity to Yahweh. What if, what if he leaves? And so they do this rite of purification so God won't take off on them. And so they cleanse God's dwelling place so God will stick around. Now, why do they use blood? And this we talked about, we spent kind of a whole Sunday on this, but I'll just remind you. This is not a blood price, okay? That's paying for sin. Blood that was tainted with guilt 
would never make it inside the Holy of Holies. Nothing tainted ever goes in there. Nothing Tomei goes in there. You're like if you, if you put your guilt on an animal and killed the enemy, animal, that blood is Tomei. It wouldn't get anywhere near the, the holy place, right? That would make it un, unclean. Blood is a symbol of life. It's the life of the animal. In this case, a Tomim animal, a blameless life. Um, plus, remember, no ritual can take away sin. So, so this is a symbol of the fact that it, it takes a lived response a life, you might say. Only, only life can overcome the powers of death. So blood symbolizes life. In fact, um, the kind of life they're shooting for. And the only access to that kind of life comes by relationship to God, proximity to, to God. That it's, it's, in fact, the life is a with God life. It's not just a life you know, that's shaped by God. It's the, it's the with God life. That's what they're after. The only way to the with God life is through a kind of death, learning to die to self, um, learning to die to our old ideas of what makes for the good life, right? That's, that's what the blood signifies here. So that, that's what happens on, on, with the first goat on the Day of Atonement. It's sacrificed in order to purify the shrine so they don't have to worry about God taking off right? But this leaves a big problem. The, the first goat only purifies the sanctuary. Um, what about the people themselves? How will they be purified? This is the reason for the second goat, of course. Um, so let's, let's read the instructions for goat number two, verse 20, starting verse 20. Um, when he has finished purging the shrine, the tent of meeting, and the altar, the live goat shall be brought forward. Aaron shall lay both, ha- both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities and transgressions of the Israelites, whatever their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. And that shall be sent off into the wilderness through a designated agent. It's a guy. Some guy's going to walk it out there. Thus the goat shall carry on it all their iniquities, to an inaccessible region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. So the second goat, goat number two, is brought into the tent of meeting. Um, later in, in, in this chapter, it's going to um, give the detail that's supposed to happen on the Sabbath, so nobody's working. Everybody's supposed to gather around the tabernacle and watch, observe what's happening here. Even the immigrants, even like resident aliens and foreigners are supposed to do this. So this is not just for the Jews. This is this is for all time and for all people. It's cosmic. Um, in fact, to this day, Gentiles can still take part in Jewish Yom Kippur services. Anybody's invited. And so the, the goat, this goat number two is brought forward. Aaron does the samak. Do you remember the samak? So the samak is the thing where they take their hands and they press it on the head of the goat. In other cases, all this meant is I'm ordaining this goat as my representative because it's blameless and I'm not, right? In this case, on the Day of Atonement, it's completely different. What he does this time is um, confess over it all the iniquities and transgressions of the Israelites. The word for confess there, I never knew this. It is the word um, yada. Remember that word? Yada means no. Like in Yiddish, yada, yada, yada. I know, I know, I know. He knows their sins over the goat. He lays his hands on it, and he just knows what he knows. 
It's this act of confession, tells the truth about their lives. And then the, the word for iniquities there is, is, is pesha, the ways they've broken faith and caused this distance to happen, and now it's rippling out into the world. So he confesses, he knows their sins while pressing on the head, samak, of, of this goat. And symbolically, it says, putting them, the sins, on the head of the goat, and, that shall, and it shall be sent off into the wilderness through a designated agent. And thus the goat shall carry on it all their iniquities to an inaccessible region. So this, the second goat is the only animal in all of Leviticus that will receive symbolically the guilt of the people. Only um, this time when this happens, the only time this happens, this goat is not killed. It's sent off into the desert, led by this designated agent. I read some stuff about this. This is so funny. Um, at some point in the tradition, um, there, the Jewish tradition became that this designated agent who walked the goat out into the wilderness should be a Gentile, not, not a Jew, which, which makes sense because like this goat has been designated to carry all the sins of all the people for an entire year. It's all been placed on this one goat's head. I mean, if you're an Israelite, you don't want to go anywhere near this goat. Like that is a loaded goat. You do not want a piece of it. It's like radioactive. So they, would, they were like, make a Gentile do it. Yeah, that'll, that'll work, do that. And scholars actually say that's part of what makes the whole Azazel thing um, make sense. This loaded goat is sent away into the wilderness and it's not an offering to placate this other god, Azazel. It's like a dirty trick. It's almost like just returning to the desert, all the you know, crap that the desert got all over them, right? Returning back out into that barrenness, the barrenness of their, their own lives. That's the symbolism of this. It's kind of sending out to Azazel where the source of all this, you know, brokenness, sending those forces of death back out there and be like, you deal with this. It's like handing them a box of toxic waste. And so they enacted this ritual, this kind of theatrical drama, this representation of what they believed God was actually doing for them once a year, just to clean the slate so that they can draw close again and get in on the lived life that comes after this and so they can pitch and catch with God and each other. There's actually a, a Jewish doctrine that describes what happens next or what's paired with this. It's called um, teshuva. Anybody heard of that, teshuva? It, it actually literally means um, to return. And it's a lot like our idea of repentance. And um, it's, it's closing the distance return, closing the distance, um, coming back again after, after you realize every, everything's been taken off away. And, and essentially what they say is, you can't have the, the benefits of Yom Kippur without teshuva, without repentance. And this requires a lived response by you. It's exactly what Jesus teaches about repentance. All their sins go on the goat and then the goat walks out of camp, and then they have to get on with teshuva, repentance. 
living their life. It has to be a lived response, right? But the goat takes their sins with them, exiling them far in, into the desert, which means they no longer have to carry them around with that withering sense of obligation and guilt, that lingering wondering, did I do enough to make things right here? They could just let all of that go. Their sins are on the goat, and the goat has left the building, and so they can get on with teshuvah. This is one of those times when the, man, the world of Leviticus just completely overlaps with the world that I live in. I mean, anybody else still carrying around some guilt about something you did? Maybe I'm thinking middle school for me. me am I the only one? And maybe every day since then, you know? All of us are still carrying around some guilt over things we've done or left undone or things that were done to us. Have you ever betrayed someone? And it's that, it broke that relationship and it's never come back. Ever failed someone or lost, lost courage, lost hope? Ever been abused or cheated on or rejected or left out and you still hold a grudge? You carry that around with you. Maybe it's you know, an addiction or a compulsion or, you know, secrets and selfishness. We just carry these things around with us. All of us do, like a pain in the soul or a shame or a regret or a sadness. And they really do steal life away from us. And they cause us to pull back from relationship with God and self and other and world. And, it, and if we're really honest about this, this, this is at the heart of, our, of what's killing us. This tame, this blemish, this pesha, the way we've broken faith and then dealt with the fallout. Or someone else broke faith with us and now we have to carry that around, especially if they won't make it right. And, and, and so we, where do we put this? Where do we put this? If we have no place to, to put it, then we just carry it around. It can be really hard to let the kind of stuff go. Letting go of that is what Yom Kippur is all about. It's letting go of any sense of guilt or shame or baggage. And so we can come closer together to Shuva, return, and start playing catch again. This is how we solve the problems we face in our particular life and in the world. It's in this relationship. This is how we find meaning and purpose and wholeness and, and flourishing. And so really, I, th I think the invitation of um, Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement is, is letting go. It's letting go. Which maybe means you need to let something go. You're clinging to something, a sense of anger or regret or an old season of life that's passing or just let someone off the hook who's wronged you, just forgive them or forgive yourself. These things can be really hard to do. What this, this second goat symbolized for them was this belief that God did not want them to carry all that stuff around anymore. And so God gave them this ritual and said, this is a lasting ordinance for you and all generations. Do this once a year, do this. Put your sins on the goat, send the goat away, and then teshuva, get back to it. Return. Do, do the relational thing that will set you free. 
And so this ritual is kind of God's way of saying, I hold nothing against you. The sins are on the goat. The goat has left the building. Get on with your life. Stop carrying this stuff around with you. Just let it go. It's killing you. You'll never fix it. You'll never fix it. All you can do is just go on, keep living until the, the mercy, which is where God touches down, until the mercy covers over. And then at one moment, atonement happens. It's a powerful ritual that we all need. Obviously, there are connections to Christ, and Christ, in fact, um, explicitly links his ministry with both of these goats. They're kind of linked together with him. I, I could, we could go to town on Hebrews for the next 45 minutes, and we would all probably be in tears, but we're not going to do that. We're just staying in Leviticus for right now. It's just enough to accept this teaching, this Torah that was obviously shaping everything that Christ did. Um, this ritual that was given in this early, early stage of the um, Hebrew people when they're still talking about Azazels and still like casting lots to figure out the will of God. But it sort of dramatizes that this at the center of um, the earth are these people. At the center of their camp is this tabernacle. At the center of their Torah are these rituals for the tabernacle. And at the center of the center of the Torah, Leviticus 16, verse 16, is this mercy seat. It's mercy at the center. And if you forget anything else about Leviticus, please don't forget this, that we all carry around with us just a lot of broken stuff, and it's withering. But at the center of all of it is mercy. That's where God touches down. And this was a revolution in, in the imagination of humanity about God. No one had ever written anything like this down anywhere in history until this moment in the middle of Leviticus. It's cool, huh? All right, let's pray. We've been doing these short exercises, um, little rituals, um, so we can join the Hebrew people in that way. So I want to invite you just to make, um, on your lap, just make your two hands into a kind of cup. Just set that in your lap. Just hold them like a cup. And um, I want you to think about um, all the things that would go on the list for the Day of Atonement for Yom Kippur. Things other people have done to you that have cost you things that you have done that have hurt others, things you carry around with you. Maybe just draw to mind two or three and imagine them, just yourself holding them in, in your hand here. Now what I want you to do is turn both hands over and kind of put one on top of the other and just kind of flex uh, or straighten out your elbows as though you're doing the samak, as though you're pushing those on the goat, on the head of the goat. Just kind of imagine yourself taking that stuff that was in your hand. The sins go on the goat. And then, and then just release and let your hands drop. Now they're on the goat. And the goat 
is being led out into the wilderness. It's exiled. The sins go on the goat, and the goat leaves. And now all that's left is um, Teshuvah, is to return to God, return to self, return to one another, and even to this world that God has made. I wonder if you could just maybe let yourself off the hook today because this is, this is what God is wanting. You know, you're a ragamuffin, man. You're jacked up. This is just the way it is. This is what it means to be human. But there's a way to always let it go and then return, right? You can do this. And we can, at Redemption Church, come together and pitch and catch and forgive and confess and restore and keep going, keep going and keep going, chasing this with God life. And this is what, this is what it means to be a Christian. And pray that you'll hold this in your heart this week. Amen. All right, would you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The reason we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and a cup and he passed it around to his guys and he said, eat this bread, drink this cup. Um, this cup signifying blood, by the way, life, right? A lived solution, a new deal between us and God. And essentially the symbolism there was just receive my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go live, go live your life and be my hands and feet in the world. And so th this is why we observe this every week that we gather. So I invite anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. If you would pray with me, let's pray a blessing. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. You come and live inside us make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Will you come?